Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. G'day and welcome to Living the Dream podcast. It's been a while and there's been a lot going on, but we're looking forward to getting into a discussion about Australia and the elections. They're yeah, exciting. We're excited. How are, are you going, you excited? Dave? I'm pretty good, actually. John, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a bit tired. But tired. I've had a good. I've been having a good time. My son, my youngest son, Max, turned two last Monday, uh, so that was pretty exciting. He's lovely you know, party. T- yeah, yeah, it was good fun. And uh, two-year-olds are pretty great. And um, my are. oldest son, Arlo's, like riding BMXs and learning how to read. So that's all kind of crazy and exciting as well. Yeah, my my yeah, my four-year-old has started to be able to write letters independently, which is yeah, pretty impressive. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's like you see that and you're like, wow. It's like, what can we? What do we? What do we even know? What do we even do? <laughs> They're learning to write, and it's like, what do we do? I yeah, yeah, it's amazing to see like um, like learning where there's still a love of learning, I guess. Yeah, like it, it that's really. True. Uh, emphasizes how learning is something that's i think is driven by a want you can't like force people to learn yes well, they learn this every week in, in class yes <laughs> yeah that is true <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's good you, look are you excited about the election john no not really no um sort of um i don't know it's kind of been going on forever if you know what i mean like i feel like yeah. you had the official campaign but it had been going on forever not that you know I don't see that necessarily as a problem, like from some sort of weird, like political standpoint. But, you know, I mean, if it had more exciting and there were more exciting policy developments, you know, if there were, or there were more, um, or there was, you know, um, any sort of um, more interesting, maybe from the left party coming in, it wasn't mm. the Greens, who, you know, we could talk about that they're doing quite interesting things and that's good. Instead, we've got like, you know, a thousand Nazis who've decided to each establish their own party, which, like, constitutes themselves and their dog. Yeah, so, look, I think already there's some stuff there that um, we really can get into. Like, I was reading, I guess as well, it's all, like, in the back of my mind, it's always, like, you, you know, what is our relationship to elections is always the question that comes up when we do these election mm. shows. Like, yeah. you know, I, that that mixture between, like, mm. on one hand is, like, anti-capitalists, you know, mm. our politics is much bigger than elections, though I'm increasingly... Um, and, you know, I think people will have detected this if they listen to the conversation that I had with Keir Milburn about a month ago. I'm mm. far more willing to concede that elections might play some role in the mm. transformation of the social order than maybe I would have 10 years ago. Mm. But but at the same time, I thought there's also there's also like a diagnostic, you know, kind of approach is that, you know, it, there is a, it does matter, I guess, at some level about which political party wins in terms of how they attempt to steer uh, the reproduction of Australian society as a capitalist society and mm. also does it to whatever level reflect... Um, you know, the, the broader balance of forces in the social order. 
And mm, I, I guess, yeah. you know, we've been pretty sympathetic to the anti-politics arguments made by friends of the show like Tad and Liz, mm-hmm. um, which basically say that politics has become disconnected from um, any kind of social base. And I was certainly reading a Piping Shrike article today and he was basically mm-hmm. like, look, all the media class, all the political class thinks this is a massive showdown between two different kind of ideological approaches. You know, if you, if you pick up the Australian... Like um, it basically is saying to you all the time that Shorten's just about to, you know, abolish the value form. But really, this is having no basis in the social order, right? Like this is not actually reflecting um, some kind of deeper antagonism. Maybe, right? Like, yeah. or maybe is the stuff around change the rules connecting to some some um, problem that's going on in capital accumulation in terms of wages have stagnated and are they being able to um, mobilise, like, a broader sentiment or are they not? Like, I, I, of course, of Max's birthday, I wasn't able to go to the, the uh, mm. Labor Day rally here. You went along, John. What was? How mm-hmm. did you see kind of... Um, the election, change the rules, and those kind of debates playing out there? I mean, I thought it was, I don't know, I've been to, the the, the quality of, of rallies in general has gone up over the last few years. So it means that May Day gets more and more depressing. Like, you know, in terms of the politics of, say, Invasion Day, which is fantastic, you go along and, 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 and there's a really good, political vibe was really good um, heaps of young people everyone's got really great militant demands and you can see that in other ways like i went to the what was it the the, the school strike that took like francis to the schools to the to the climate strike and you know despite it coinciding with christchurch which we'll probably end up talking about at some point it was a um really inspiring really great rally so you know going on to labor day is always a bit a bit dispiriting uh which is you know, kind of a good thing in a way. Um, but, yeah, for me, the the Labor Day rally was very much electorally, electorally geared. Um, then, interestingly, yeah, Shorten didn't actually show up. So um, Sally McManus was there. Um, and Anastasia Palaszczuk, State, Queensland State Premier, get, was there and gave a talk. But, yeah, so that for some reason, I guess Shorten decided that there was more important things to do at this time than... Uh, you know, the labour movement was crying that there were like 40,000 people there. And I, I, if anything, I thought numbers were down in previous years. So I seriously doubt it was anywhere near 40,000. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, got my sausage, a few beers, the normal. I think that's like, maybe we'll take this point up a, a bit later. I think that's quite interesting because, you know, the, the change the rules politics as I can see them from an outsider is basically making this argument that what they'll do is, is you know, they'll struggle and campaign for the ALP to be elected. They'll hand the ALP the election and therefore that'll give them some kind of negotiating pe- like place in a future ALP government to allow them to imp- to, like, push forward the politics that the trade unions want. I just don't think that's the case. But look, before we go any further, one thing I'd really like to do is have some time to um, discuss some um, pretty considered criticism that we received of a previous show. Is that all right with you, John? Certainly, yes. Yeah. Look, I think... So there's two pieces of criticism, um, both from friends of the show, Anastasia, and from Shane. And... Look, I really appreciate 
the effort that the people have gone to. Like, I'm always a bit surprised that people, you know, I'm really thankful that that people listen to our show. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, no, that's, that's it's really validating, that's and <laughs> and um, I, I feel that you know we've been able to use the show to participate in kind of a largely online but a critical radical anti-capitalist kind of space for discussion that's going on in Australia mm-hmm. and to, for people to go look actually I've got some some criticisms to make here is is actually it's really challenging but it's also I, re- I appreciate it too and I would like to encourage um, people if they feel that we've gone off off base or we've made some errors to, to like please um, make those criticisms like our um, it, don't worry about like uh, offending us or our, our sensibilities or anything I, I think it, what is more important is the quality of, of the discussion now I'd like to kind of um, maybe we go through individually each of the criticisms that people have made but I'd also recommend that people go check them out themselves so Anastasia made a number of criticisms of the episode that we recorded the second episode we recorded with Simon Copland do you remember that one John? Mm-hmm. I, do, I do so you know what what we kind of did there, I guess, was, um, you know, we caught up with Simon after the plebiscite and we'd, we'd had a conversation with him before the plebiscite as well and kind of made a critique of, I guess, the, the main, the, the dominant politics that had been made by the Yes campaign. And then uh, we connected uh, to talk about some of the work that Simon had done as well by attending a speech by Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux, so these kind of alt-right personalities. And then his analysis of what what, what was their appeal, and we had a discussion of of what we thought was the alternative, like why there was an appeal and the potential alternatives. Mm. Um, So, like, the first kind of critique um, that Anastasia makes is linked to um, really... The, the point that we made around the notion of, of injury. So mm. one of the arguments that we made at the time, and Anastasia, if we're butchering your criticism, please write a <laughs> criticism of our response. You know, one of the points we made is that, like the, that um, we saw a lot of the, the Yes campaign um, framing itself in terms of the defence of people who couldn't defend themselves, I guess, or something mm. like you know, that. There was the, the saying that the plebe, that the plebiscite was an experience purely of injury. I guess mm. that's, that's probably the better way to to do this, mm. and that our the argument they were making this was very reminiscent of the criticism that Wendy Brown made in in States of Injury, where mm-hmm. she and that argument is that social movements that frame themselves in terms of injury almost inev- inevitably um, call the state into being and can can't mm. carry out a transformative project and Anastasia's critique is like isn't that just a form of kind of bullshit resilience politics that we're just mm. telling people to get over what is the very real pain of being engaged in those politics particularly um, because that there was that this campaign did cause a lot of hurt and also mm. that it was targeted on children. And we also had a discussion as well that in the past, you know, that youth used to be seen as a radical and powerful category, but we were making an argument um, that 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 instead they turned kind of children into a, this campaign and turned children into people who needed to be saved. Mm. So, I, like, I think there's a it's hard to dismiss, you know, as someone mm. who didn't... Um, 
feel the kind of sharp ends of that campaign. Like it's like mm. okay, maybe we've made uh, we've made a misstep here. Um, mm. But one of the things I was thinking about as well, which we didn't talk about, is you know, of course, um, social movements and social struggles often do do. Um, often do involve a lot of hurt and a lot of difficulty. Political battles do hurt mm. people. But my my response would be is that actually the politics of feminism then the queer liberation movement that had developed in, in the 70s and 80s had a different response to this, which was the development of practices of care. Mm. You know, and, and in fact, I think something that is particularly from gay and liberation struggles and queer struggles was, you know, this generational um, production of like relationships of care, alternative form of family structures to deal mm-hmm. with the very real violence, family rejection, social isolation that came with people coming out. And so my argument would be like maybe, maybe it was a mistake that um, we were too dismissive of taking seriously the herd of social struggle. But mm. I still think you can make a criticism of the transformation of that injury into a demand for state intervention or for saying that fighting itself was the mistake. Like, you're the, I guess you're the historian here with particularly a focus on the period of the new left. Like, how historically has, like, social movements deal dealt with this question of injury and care. Hmm. That's really it's really interesting point. I mean, I don't think they would have spoken in terms of in, in those terms of care. Like certainly that's in self care. These are more contemporary terms. Um but yeah, I mean it, I was reminded in this whole discussion of a is a, an image, um of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was one of the bigger civil rights movements in America, one of the radical ones that did sit-ins, you know, so they trained, yeah, their people for sit-ins and what that would mean, you know, when they would go into like the Woolworths lunch counter and, and sit down and they would get abused. And the whole idea of, of that was to put themselves out there in a mediatized environment and for to be subjected to abuse and to have milkshakes poured on them and like any number of things so they would do this training where they would have people sit down and then they'd have just another member of SNCC just abuse the Christ out of them you know so that's not exactly a politics of self-care but it does it's politics seems to prepare people for the um for the reality of that sort of abuse for that for that sort of abuse that's going to happen. So, it, and it seemed to come from a sort of politics that didn't necessarily think that the state was going to step in and help them out. You know, like they were very dismissive of you know the the push by Johnson on the civil rights and the protect civil rights protections and um, and whatnot and and you know like the African American experience is very much one that the state, the northern state, is not really going to help us out. It had didn't have reconstruction. Um, it, it, it's not going to now, really. Um, and we need to take matters into our own hands and we need to organise in our own ways to challenge the sort of um, sort of emotional abuse that we're going to... that we're going to face, you know? Um, so I don't know how much that... Like, you know, as, as, and as you, you said as well, like, we are not queer people. We're not 
in that environment. So we, we can't really know to the degree to which um, this sort of training was taking place or this, this sort of knowledge. Um, but certainly, yeah, like, I'd say, historically speaking, there was an acknowledgement that people were going to be abused, that, you know, putting yourself out there was going to lead to violence and intimidation and death threats and death, actual death, you know, actual physical violence. So that is something that um, that 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 um, seems to have that that was present there and and um, and yeah, really kind of convinced, I suppose, by Brown's argument that that the sort of weaponization, I guess, of sort of um, of these sorts of things, of this sort of um, culture, which seems to always, as you say, bring forth the state um, rather than sort of producing caring communities um within the movements themselves um is problematic but then as, as again i don't want to be yelled at in my activism i don't i don't I, that doesn't happen to me not not often at least you know i don't often get physically abused or emotionally abused in my activism so what right do i have to comment i guess yeah i guess like like i, I really in terms of thinking about it think like it's um the the response to the politics of injury, um, maybe the error that we made was to deny that the injury was real, um, or to or to say that you know the the political ideology shouldn't be focused on injury; it should focus focus on triumph and victory, and maybe that's a real problem. But the the, the actual problem is not a politics that engages with injury, but one that gauge, engages with a solution is the state to intervene in a depoliticizing way because mm. i do think you know like um any kind of social confrontation and essentially like we argue for a politics of social confrontation like you mm-hmm. know a, a, a radical analysis to use the uh, like old maoist line is to mm. argue that the one divides into two that yeah. you know you want to split in the social order to allow social contestation for um for the possibility of social transformation to happen and Thank I, you I don't for think you know, self criticism stuff. <laughs> that's um, important. Well, I, but I also think it's important too because, like, maybe that kind of politics, which you know, which has a, a bad name for a, a, a whole mm. range of legitimate reasons, like um, partly what it doesn't allow is actually that. Well, social confrontation also needs like collective practices of care, whether yeah. that's you know the the mixture of like what you're talking about with with sneak with people like training themselves to deal with abuse, or whether it's people you know training the, you know, training themselves to be able to physically defend themselves. But mm-hmm. also maybe it is this kind of thing that you know that um, I think you know historically feminism and queer struggles have been much better at, which is to focus on how do people collectively love each other as well and mm-hmm. and take care of people each other and allow that there's a space to to discuss like the pain and vulnerabilities of social struggle and anastasia's critique then has a really good theoretical point um, which i think people should just check out as well is that the notion of childhood is not a universalized category but is actually Mm. produced by the dynamics of race and class that interact Um, and then from there she goes on to actually say well this is what you really got wrong in this episode and she thinks what we did was kind of like um, not sufficiently deal with the issues of race that were raised in in that episode. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we we talked about um, like a Twitter 
mm. exchange we'd had over um, Osman Faruqi and some of the mm. comments that he had made, which we had disagreed with. Mm. He was then, for these co- comments, subsequently doxed off Twitter. Mm. And Anastasia's point is like, well, you say that's bad, but, you know, what you didn't look at is like, what are the conditions that allowed him actually to be doxed off Twitter? So, um, and there's a specific line where they write, and furthermore, what are the implications of a political movement that is able to remove political commentators with whom they disagree from the public sphere through the mobilisation of hate and fear? Um, Because I think, you know, what we were making at the time, it was an argument that, you know, there's a level of left commentariat who think Australian society is more uniformly reactionary Mm. than it is and that racism has a more kind of fixed political basis amongst the mass of people than we think it does. Anastasia's point here, um, which I think is really interesting to say, well, doesn't this actually example disprove your case? Which, Mm. you know, throws to me something that's going on in the election talk at the moment is like Mm. how do we actually measure the, the power and size and influence of reactionary politics in Australia. Is mm. there a rising racist reactionary wave going on or is there something else? And um, how do we account for that ability for uh, people like, like Osman to be um, singled out and pushed out of the, the public space, which is not the only person, you know. Um, there's been, a, I guess, like numerous public... Um, yeah. commentators of colour in Australia have been forced out of, you know, like some leave the, leave the country, forced off social yeah. media for often making relatively um, benign um, mm. arguments. So how do we put the pieces together on this, John? I mean, I was listening to um, Liz, um, Liz Humphreys, friend of the show, already been mentioned. She had a really interesting podcast um, for the Tally Room, which we'll link to, and she was, yeah, talking about this disjuncture, I guess, that they've noted in their anti-politics work, um, well, that, that Liz and Tad have each noted in their in their contributions on this question of anti-politics, that um, seemingly, at least if we go by opinion polls, evidence of racism is declining people are less racist people claim to be less racist people claim to be more multicultural while at the same time we continue to see at least small sections of the population drawn into these sorts of um fascist or 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 far right like a very very small number into active involvement in these but seemingly a much larger number who are willing to uh, vote for them um engage in social media uh, so I'm not sure whether this is evidence of the hardening of a small core of racists as their political project becomes even more implausible in the context of a society that's increasingly anti-racist and certainly the um, that was what the, 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 the rhetoric of the, of the Christchurch attacker was seemed to infer that that that, that this was the, his action was the result of the inability to mobilize a, a, a mass racist politics. Um, so I don't know whether that is whether there's there's something in in there about the the radicalizing of, of a smaller group of people um, who are very visible, kind of um, 
who are very visible on social media, um, while the rest of the population is is less, I suppose, less willing to engage in overt racism and seemingly race issues we would traditionally consider to be race race based issues, like immigration, as their high point of or the thing that they will be their deciding vote. But then also, of course. The other critique you can make of that is, you know, well, they're putting questions of the economy, for instance. Um, what, like, vote these voters who are ostensibly anti-racist are putting issues of the economy at the front, but who knows what their reading of that is. It could very well be a racist reading of the economy, saying, you know, uh, that, 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 that there's, um, you know, white people being driven out of the economy or whatever, or... Um, some sort of white uh, vulnerability. Uh, it's yeah. This is, I guess I'm just trying to point at the difficulty of of inferring broad societal trends on yeah. that basis. If you know yeah. what I mean. I guess like like I've been thinking about this a lot since receiving Anastasia's um, criticism, and it and it ties in with her next point, which was like she thought that um, we didn't seriously and people should should read the, her, their comments that that we thought. Um, we kind of downplayed the material basis for the popularity of racism amongst um, the broader white masses, for a lack of a better term, and kind of only understood like expressions of people being attracted towards racism because they themselves were injured and were looking for an explanation. And in my attempt to kind of think about this, and I really have to say at the moment, is I don't feel that I have... Um, a really finished understanding of the operation and history of racism in Australia, nor do I feel that um, I've been able to find like a core text which I read and go, oh, that's really, that Mm. hits the nail on the head. So I've kind of like been scatter reading through the the critical race and whiteness studies journal. But um, Mm. I feel like when I read that, that I've missed some foundational text. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, you know that there's a lot of there's a shared understanding and there's a debate going on. But I feel that I've missed that text, and I've been reading uh, mm. Gas and Hage's uh, mm. White Nation, which was you know everyone was reading twenty years ago when yeah. Hansen first appeared on the scene, mm. um, and I, I found it quite disappointing. But I think we should talk about that another time. Mm. Um, but I guess like the, the the first analytical approach would be is like well when we're talking about racism, I think we're meaning separate interrelated phenomena so Mm. one would be um the structural inequalities that exist in the society around hierarchy of racial and ethnic identity Mm -hmm. Um, the activity of the state in policy and ideology and then public opinion and public ideology around this tipped to public um intellectual uh, public political Mm. behavior and you know you've written a lot about the white australia policy recently and like Mm. and i think we might have talked about this before but in my head i think up until the end of the white australia policy this seems very clear in my analysis you have like structural inequality which is based around the the genocide and dispossession of indigenous people and the exclusion of non-white migrants Um, You then have Mm -hmm. a formal state policy, even though it's not called the white Australia policy, and a dominant socially wide ideology. And then you have large scale public um, support for this. 
and that mm. comes out of a, an agreement between capital and labor basically right like that mm-hmm. you know there's movements through the australian labor movement in the end of the 19th century and there's elements of australian capitalists that forge this policy mm-hmm. and then if you've written about this breaks and i think the shape like it's not like racism disappears but mm. the um form that hierarchies of of inequality take and the relationship between those three levels become more complicated and strange so you know we we now have like formally anti-racist politics right like we've seen that all the time not just in those sentiments you're talking about but we've had a cavalcade of right-wing politicians who've been disendorsed even from like reactionary parties for saying things that would be completely socially acceptable in the 1960s yeah yeah no that's 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 totally right and i mean um for me i guess even beyond the white australia policy when i think about like the australian settlement if you want to call it that paul kelly's terms i mean i'm not sure if the wages if you want to call it the, the wages of whiteness were best expressed or but most clear to australians certainly ideologically they appeared with the white australia policy the series of policies were called the white australia policy but equally the policies of um, of tariff protection were just as significant these were the these were the that that kept australia isolated from the economies of asia and that kept them that that ensured that australian white workers had a high standard of living um relatively high standard of living com- comparatively and that was as a result of the fact that it was isolated tied into imperial trade networks that author other nations were, were isolated from um, and that Australia um, that, that that was the material reality in a way of race of, of institutionalized racism in Australia as much as the white Australia policy itself so that did make sense I suppose of the way that when those protections come down at the same time as the white Australia policy is done away with well the white Australia policy is done away with in the 1970s but there isn't really mass migration what we call mass migration um, of peoples of, of, of Asian descent, really, uh, until the 1980s, at the same time as, as the Hawke government's bringing down the tariff barriers and dislocating traditional industries and these sorts of things that I think are just as associated of sort of racism of the Australian economy as they as as with as the white Australian policy was. It was kind of like an immigration policy, which was constantly changing, and by the 70s was largely defunct anyway if you know does that make sense yeah it does make sense like particularly in the in the way that um so i think the way that a lot of people are attempting to theorize about this at the moment is through the concept of whiteness right Mm. though i think like 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 any concept like class when someone says whiteness they there's a lot of different understandings of what that can possibly mean and sometimes it means to be theorised later, right? And that's not only a problem of people who engage in whiteness studies or critical racist studies or organising around race. That's often you have that with a central concept. And so, like, for, for me, the people that really make sense are those um, Americans, so like people like Noel Ignatiev, um, in particular, people who came out of the Sojourner Truth organisation who are dr- drawing on the work. I know we talked about this a couple of days ago. Is it WEB? Du Bois, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, Du Bois. Yeah, so, you know, Du Bois is a black American sociologist who I haven't read um, 
the, is it radical reconstruction or black reconstruction in America? Yes, yeah. yeah, there's this fundamental historical reading of the of reconstruction being the period after the the Civil War, um, where you know theoretically a radical program of you know social mobility for African Americans for freed slaves ended up being significantly curtailed for numerous reasons. Yeah, so like Ignatiev says that Du Bois refers to one of the governments in the South as being the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, mm, um, yeah. immediately during the period of Reconstruction, mm, and then yeah. Reconstruction is kind of stopped by reinstituting um, a hierarchy amongst the working class based on race, and this is the mm. substantive content of whiteness. And people like Ignatiev and, and Ted Allen, um, they establish this ha- having a longer history. So, for them in their reading of America, and Ignatiev basically says, in his understanding, whiteness only really applies to America and a couple of other countries. Um, yeah. You know, whiteness is this internal set of material privileges um, that a section of the working class get out of the racial exploitation of others, and it ties them to maintaining the social order and being exploited, Mm. but it's not immutable, right? Like, Mm. for him, he describes it as the fish hook, and he believes Mm. it can be politically challenged. And the interesting thing that he mm. begins to make, and he's associated with a journal called Hard Crackers that I, um, people would advise people to check out, he sees this as different than racism, right? Mm. Like, he says there's all kinds of different racism. So, you know, Irish people go through racism, Italian migrants go through racism, but they are included in whiteness. And he goes as mm. far to say that contemporary um, Southeast Asian, East Asian and African migrants to the United States... Mm. can be included as being structurally white, mm. right? Even yep. though they, they suffer racism. And then there's a recent debate in the journal um, Insurgent Notes where mm. they kind of talk about like the actual material basis of whiteness, if it still exists or is it falling apart. I guess then when I apply that to Australia, you know, what you have then in my kind of analysis would be is that well that's it was the it was the maintenance of the as you said the the restricted labor market mm. um, that actually worked to um, enforce that's that's how the how whiteness worked right like you excluded mm. people from being able to compete in the labor market and as you said that labor market was plugged into certain economic circumstances yeah. I think what's happened in Australia that is still the main cert- status of order right like mm. um, this both politic both sides of politics yeah. are still committed to you know, the defence of Australian jobs. What is yep. less stable is the category of who gets to be Australian. Yeah, it, it's not a as, really good point. It's, yeah. it's not as clearly... Uh, it is racialized, and I think mm-hmm. it has a default position of being white, but yeah. it's unstable in a way that it wasn't before. Mm. And so a lot of the politics now of race, um, mm. you know, are around about who gets to be included and what yeah. is the condition of, of that inclusion. And I think you can say, all right, that produces a real material basis. So Mm. let's think about a practical example. If you have a situation at the moment where the CFMMEU, like their approach to the election campaign Mm. is to run an argument, a heavily nationalist campaign about defending Aussie jobs on um, ships that, that are in Australian waters, that is a continuation of this politics, right? But there's also a, a material basis for that, that if you work on... The, that people will support this politics because as people who are competing 
um, as proletarians in a capitalist economy without a radical alternative um, that's being articulated, that this seems to be the best way to protect your immediate livelihood that you're dependent on. And I think this connects to a bigger theorization that even though the globe is proletarianized, the condition of that proletarianization is one of fun, always happened through a hierarchy of divisions. This is what Silvia Federici um, made the argument. So I guess, like, mm. you know, Anastasia's right to realize that, you know, when people are one to reactionary politics, it's there mm. is a material basis that does it, but it's a fish hook, right? I don't, yeah. like, my, my disagreement with with a kind of ontological reading of whiteness, would say, mm. well, this is just a fundamental condition, um, mm. you know, and that that, yeah. that effaces the class antagonisms. Well, I don't think that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like I was saying, when we were talking about this a few days ago, like, if you have a reading of race that basically just says that it is, as you said, ontological, that it is pre-existing, that it is, um, it over-determines, sort of your relationships then what does that mean in terms of transformative politics like it like can you can you then transform is there anything but like a politics of um of separatism of which there's of course like a long history um and maybe that's right white and black you know in terms of you yeah. know separate in terms of apartheid in terms of um um, Garveyism, not to equate the two, of course, because these are very different dynamics, but certainly concepts of um, of separateness mm-hmm. um, seem like what is the logical outcome there if you can't, if people's um, ideas are not, which is a central innovation of Marxism, of course, you know, at least for me, like if people's ideas are not formed through their engagement with the, with, with the economy and through society and as a consequence they're not capable of them being changed in turn then what are we doing yeah and that's that's a really interesting thing uh, you know it's interesting to go back to ignatiev and the sojourner mm. truth organization because when they uh, started you know they were part of that new communist movement i think they're part of the new communist movement turned to industry yeah. and they, yeah. so they said like look you know look um it is within these mass workplaces that this hierarchy mm. is fundamentally built. So as largely mm. white workers, they thought what you needed to do was rather than just say, hey, everyone should get along, you needed to politically mm. organise against the hierarchies that were in the workplace. And they saw mm-hmm. this as a pretty confrontational process, right? A lot of pushing and shoving and yelling and fighting and getting involved and getting your hands dirty. But mm. if you look at what one of their problems has been, like what happens when that factory space disappears? Mm. You know, where is that site um, for contestation? And I guess the same mm. thing is in, in Australia. It's like, where is that point for contestation? And I think there'd be lots of cases where, you know, we have all these people, you know, it's at the border, but it's also, as you know, as Angela Metropolis's work points out, that the border is not just the border, it stratifies mm. the country. You know, we do have these huge pools of workers, people who are working in Australia who are excluded from that deal by the status of their citizenship. Or mm-hmm. we do have, like, you know, the, the, the racial policing of Indigenous people. Like, these are the points where it can be mm. contest, contested. And the kind of Ignatius politics is it's almost like changing ideas comes after, you know, it's, it's not, I was talking to Fergal about this the other day, instead of the old slogan of like, free your mind and your ass will follow, it's like free mm. your ass and your mind will follow. Well, you know, well, it's that's actually, materialist reading politics, well, isn't it? Well, well, I guess because they go back to the Civil War, they're really into mm. the Civil War, the hardcrackers types, and they're like... They're you know, reenactors, uh, just 
Well, their argument is, you know, like, you know, at the, at the start of the American Civil War, like most people in the North mm. uh, are not anti-racists or not oh, particularly yeah. anti-slavery, neither is Lincoln, but they're transformed by the experience of the war. Right, like yeah. Now there's a really good um, Matt Carp historian in the US did a good article in Jacobin, which we can link to, which was about you know this um, concept of uh, that yeah about the Civil War, about when the Re- Republicans were a socialist party when they were founded in eighteen in eight, in in, in eighteen uh, fifty. Ooh, when would that election have been? In the in the eighteen fifties. Um, eighteen super nerds yeah, no, 18, it was 1856, and um, they campaigned on this, you know, radical get rid of slavery sort of concept that at the time, you know, they didn't do very well at all. It only took four years, and they ran the same platform again really hard, and they were actually able to, you know, convince, that, that, and they were able to, to, to win on that platform you know, through organizing, you know, as you said, then, you know, the process of the war is radicalizing. Yeah, because, you know, on the one hand, you know, you've, you've got the, the, the need to, um, to liberate, to liberate um, slaves for you know, economic purposes. Um, but yeah, also just, you know, the, um, the reality, I guess, that, that slavery wasn't just a dying institution, that it was a living institution and it was a growing institution. And it needed to be challenged directly, and it wasn't just going to go away, you know? Yeah, and I, I guess this, this means it's like, you know, this gives us some insight maybe as a, like a polar star about what an anti-racist politics might look like. Mm. So, um, look, I hope, Anastasia, you feel like we have addressed some of your criticisms there, if you're listening. Um, and please continue to make further criticisms or engage in the debate if you think we're just compounding a problem or getting something mm. wrong either. We're spending a long time before we even get into the election, John. Right. But Maybe we should get into the election. Then. But I, there's one other criticism I want to raise first. Okay. It could probably segue into the election. I think it will. So, um, yeah. Okay. so this was from Shane, friend of the show, yeah. Yeah. who... Um, made a comment on our very popular episode on Sally McManus's uh, On Fairness book, one of our most popular episodes ever. Mm. Um, so, look, I want to read this. So, yeah. um, while it, it says, okay, just get a Band-Aid, John, ready for the wound. I'm ready. Like, um, okay, I'm while it is important... <laughs> While it is important, it is also well-trodden ground for like the whole 20th century. I reckon it'd be interesting to move from this comfortable territory into the much more difficult ground of what is the ACT trying to do with this book politically at the moment? Why have social democratic politics have... Tra- why have social democratic politics have... I think there's a word missing. Have gained traction in the working class, assuming they do. Why is Sally so popular? Why are revolutionary ideas so marginal? Tackling these questions in earnest is also a place where one is less likely to come off sounding like righteous, smug, armchair Marxists. I don't think either of you are these things, and I love your podcast. I am, actually. <laughs> but, an, um, but analysis at this safe distance is thin ice. Follow-up episode, perhaps. I think that's really good. Like, I, yeah, can't answer, like, I think also I can't answer those questions. I think they're really interesting questions, right? Like about mm. why the trade unions have orientated towards... The change the rule of the campaign, why? But I can't answer it because I'm so far outside the trade union hierarchy. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like I've said in the past, I think part of it is they want to recreate the glory days of the um, of the Your Rights at Work campaign. Um, but I don't think that they can in the same way. So, I mean, yeah, like, you know, the McManus book is very much like, you know, now that we see the full suite of 
ALP policy offerings, it is very much an election manifesto, in a way. It's, 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 it's trying to give some sort of broader narrative and apparatus to, you know, a very restrained form of social democracy that the Labour Party is running on. And, you know, the fact that he's, you know, that, that Shorten's being dubbed, you know, a, a class warrior on on such a, you know, and, you know, like um, Labour figures like uh, Tim Soupomasan are, you know, dubbing this, you know, a, a muscular social democracy, whatever that means, that, that, that this is a... Um, that this is the politics that, that, that this book was was designed then as a, as a way of trying to sell to a broader to a, to a broad audience um, the sort of the promise of the of a, of a shortened government yeah so we are expecting the labor party to win the election right mm. yes I we're think always so. wrong though yeah so i don't want to um, yeah. I don't Do you feel that by announce, announcing it, you're going to curt like it'll it'll suddenly look? Yeah. Okay. The thing will implode over the next two days. <laughs> well, I. It's, look, it's always a chance, man. Yeah. <laughs> look, they're, they're, <sighs> these people know how to fuck things up. Yeah. Okay. So, so that that's totally true. So, <laughs> let, let's let's think about this. So, um, like we have a coalition government that mm. I think was, um, e- that is largely hollow um, that has been like torn apart by an internal fight over wacky right-wing ideas Mm. that um, really doesn't have any kind of program or base and is splintering to these kind of far-right elements right yeah and that the what the effect of the plebiscite was was to cause this problem for the right in australia because their standard argument was that they represented a silent majority, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, Lex was making this argument on, on Twitter recently yeah. and that the plebiscite proved to them that they, they weren't the silent majority, hence, like, the popularity of cultural Marxists and those kind of things. Mm. At the same time, like, you know, this doesn't just happen purely in a reified air. There are um, very real contradictions about capitalist society that, that's happening. Um, like right now and you know if you without spending too much time going into it in in too detail but you know like if if there's a new um, statement of monetary policy that came out from the rba recently if today or yesterday i don't know i i downloaded it today i don't know when it came down maybe it was last week Um, and also you know the imf have had their recent meetings if you like what's going on is you know like globally um things we've talked about before this kind of holding pattern that capitalism has been in since the financial crisis of you know growth um, and financial asset values being stimulated by cheap money and then the worry that that stimulation itself might lead to a crisis is still playing out with what's happening at the moment is that you know growth is slowing in china as the chinese state are trying to like pull back on some of the the cheap money that's going out there worried about instability at the same time you have this new product of trumponomics and tariffs that are that are trying to being imposed so um american capital can accelerate at the cost of the rest of the world that has an impact on australia because we're just so tied to the chinese economy so if you look at um at the the statement on monetary policy what do you see a continuation of these trends of of, you know slowing growth stagnant wages leading Mm -hmm. to slowing consumption 
house prices are beginning to to um, drop as the kind of overproduction of housing is really um, hitting home, and mining mm. investment um, has been pulling down and, and dropping as well, though it's projected to grow in the future. So this kind of mm. one of the main challenges in a, in Australia, like, is like how do you deal with this kind of overall softening of capital accumulation? Um, how do you fund the state? How do you deal with the challenges of energy and climate change? And mm. um, the coalition, like, what has they had in the budget? I don't even remember what was in the budget, right? But I read an article yeah. from um, from uh, Greg Jericho, is it yeah. recently, where he's yeah. like, well, I read it all and I don't remember what's in it. Yeah. But basically <laughs> it was like, well, how do they deal with it is tax cuts, yeah. right? Because, you know, you, if you have an increase in wages, um, you know, like that's that hits profit, so that's going to hit investment. And I think that... Yeah. The ALP are trying to manoeuvre a different strategy at this this point in time, which appears yeah. at some level, which is attempting to respond to this crisis, right? Yeah. But um, it relies on an idea that that's essentially you can work out a way of having increasing wages and increasing capital accumulation. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've lost my, well, tra- I've lost my train of thought. No, I was, no, no, just, no, no, no. just gesticulating wildly with my hands and I got distracted. You know, we can't see you. Doesn't have the same effect to gesticulate wildly in audio, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, they want the return to to Fordism, right? Which is when you could have that, you could have it well, all. You well, could I, have, you know, growing wages, and you could have growing capital accumulation because of you know the 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 unmet um, you know possibilities of industrial society after World War Two and hyper exploitation of colonies. You don't well, got that anymore. I think the trade unions do right. Like that's yeah. certainly the po- that like that's as we talked about before. That's the yeah. politics of, of Salomon McManus. But yeah. if you actually look at the Labor Party itself, what they're mm. promising in their stand up for workers, uh, better yeah. paid and protected jobs, is is mm. pretty small. So it's restoring yeah. penalty rates. It's cracking down on labor hire. Um, mm. It's some limits to contracting and casuals. Mm. So the, a promise to take action on the gender pay gap, but that doesn't exist yeah. as well at all, really. And then the mm. politics of local jobs for local workers, crack down on yeah. the abuse of 457 visas, um, prioritise Australian grade steel and protect local mm. manufacturers. This sounds exactly like the shit you were talking before in terms of classic. Yeah. But it's like whenever I've... Rate, like there's this kind of labour argument out there where you get from mm. Labour supporters, but something big is about to come. Like, where the fuck is it, right? Like, yeah. you know, that, like, really what they're promising is quite minimal. So it means, mm. like, if there's this kind of, like, say Change the Rules has been able to mo- mobilise a thin fraction of the class, right? Because I don't think it's particularly yeah. popular. No. Like, it's, you know, the Labour you know, the Labor government is actually, you know, putting forward a relatively kind of lukewarm... Um, politics about how to deal with this crisis of you know stagnating mm-hmm. wages, but I don't think it can be solved within capital. I guess is probably my point. Yeah, no, it can't. Um, so I guess you could say that the, the the change rules is you know the trade union movement's intervention into the ALP. They want um, you know they, this is this is them trying to push trying to push um, their particular agenda. You don't have to come back in, Dave. I forgot my key point. That's, that's all right. Um, I, I, I guess, like, to stop being pessimist and to go back to kind of, you know, there's um, Shane's part of his comment is, like, why is this popular, right? Like, that, mm. that I think this has responded with a certain layer of people and what do they mm. do come um, Monday after the election, right? So, 
You know, mm. like uh, you know, there has been these mobilisations of people. The rallies in Melbourne have been particularly big. The ones up here have have been tiny. You know, really, yeah. um, what what do people do? Uh, you know, come the Monday the twentieth, right after the election, you have an ALP government in. Like when you look at the kind of the things that's come out of the the trade unions, it's pretty much an argument for just inside um, lobbying, really, rather mm. than anything else. But I guess yeah. I guess it's like you know we are looking at a, a Labor victory. Mm. There is this kind of element of social democratic language, but what is actually even proposed is is smaller than what's expected, and I don't think it can fund it. Like, and I don't think it'll work anyway. You know, like, this is what we've talked about previously. Yeah, I think that they're going to really try to move away from enterprise bargaining as a model. I think mm-hmm. that they want to move to more centralised wage fixing, back to more centralised arbitration is one thing um, that they will try to do. And, um, you know, in terms of that gender pay gap, um, you know, they controversial announcement of the, the 20% raise to childcare workers that was labelled communism by one... Uh, esteemed member um but all of these are long-term solutions but they're not going to solve anything immediately they're not going to arrest they're not going to be able to you know like if you raise if you artificially raise the wages of you know thousands of childcare workers that is fantastic for those individual workers right because they are hugely underpaid and hugely undervalued however that's not going to have a huge effect on the on the on the economy overall, um, and there's these kind of weird attempts from both sides now to sort of fuel the housing market by pretending to help out young people by giving them by giving fifteen percent. Like, have you have you seen this 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 thing mm. where they want to yeah the five percent pretty much chopping in trucking in fifteen percent government money or something into uh, into into speculative re- real estate basically. Well, this is this is interesting too, right? Because even if you go back to the the issue of the childcare wages, and of course, yeah. childcare workers should have yeah. much bigger wages. Like yes. it, now, if I am correct, this isn't a ch- like in a change in the award. This is no. a subsidy coming from that's the right. state. So, that's right. so this is really interesting, right? Like that's right. where yeah. it's a model of saying, well, how do we like the same way that the liberals' argument was, okay, how do we deal with wages? Well, it's it's going to be tax cuts, right? Mm-hmm. Like the state intervenes. This mm-hmm. is again not saying, well, capital should be forced to pay more, but the state intervenes. And I think you know everyone has stopped thinking about like debt and social reproduction and debt crises partly because like you know mm. i don't think we are going to go like the state is going to go in surplus but australia has been able to manage its its um its deficit no. growth even as the debt has continued to balloon but partly mm. i think um the popularity of modern monetary theory which i'm not making a comment on if it's good or bad but its impact has kind of taken away people's focus that actually paying for things may be a problem for the capital capitalist state right like mm-hmm. um yeah. but so here we have like different strategies of how the state tries to compensate for these problems in actual the social relations between the the class relations between capital and labor which i think mm-hmm. is a really limited fucking politics yes yes i mean and it, it, it is, and, you know, like they were getting up and down, the Liberals are getting up and down, that this is, you know, an abandonment of a, over 100 years of, of industrial relations policy for the state to directly intervene in wages. And it's like, yes, well, that's that's true, but equally nothing that you're current, nothing that's currently happening is seeming to arrest, yeah, this this, yeah. this stagnation of wages. And um, in all likelihood, you know, like I've always said, that, that Labour has always been the better party of, uh, of managing capital, you know, 
I wonder how much, yeah, like, you know, this this popularity of, of modern monetary theory, basically, you just, you can spend as much as you want, and it's not really going to have a negative overall impact, um, you know, like, is that the solution, <laughs> you know, well, to a, a further corporate, further kind of um, entrenching further corporatism um, in, in the Australian economy in that way? Yeah, look, look I, I don't want to divert too much into, like, MMT mm. itself, no. but I think it, it doesn't have a particularly radical horizon. And, no. um, you know, its model is still very much like a way of reviving a Keynesian project. Um, please, I, speaking of criticism, I expect we'll get a bunch of it after saying that. But I think even with um, what the Labor Party is planning, isn't MMT in the sense that MMT theorists just think you can just produce money, this would be borrowing right um but apparently the you know the alp has put out a fully costed budget proposal yada 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 even smaller surplus etc um mm. but okay since we've taken up so much time with our criticism some will will, will fit that what about the uh, you know the federal right you know are we seeing an election where there's been a proliferation of, of, of reactionaries racists and nazis and does this represent like a growth in this reactionary politics in australia similar to the growth of reactionary politics uh, around the world yeah i mean my gut reaction would be to say that as i was saying before i think that it is that the right, much like the radical left as a political body, you know, has failed to mobilise large numbers of people, uh, largely speaking, and the radical right is splitting in numerous directions as a result of that inability to move large numbers, large numbers of people. That doesn't mean that it's not a threat. It is a significant threat, especially to people's um, people of colour, recent migrants who they whom they target. Um, but electorally speaking, um, yeah, like the, the, the growth of minor parties is not a new thing, uh, certainly. Um, if you're a fan of flicking through old election outcomes, as I do at times, then you'll see that, you know, there's always been proliferations of small minor parties. I mean, even the Democrats are back this time around. I don't know how successful that will be, given that they're main senator, at least the one I remember myself, is running for the Greens in Brisbane. Uh, bless his soul. And it's, yeah, I'm not sure what what this, what this is going to do except for fracture the right vote, which theoretically, assuming they're all smart enough to know how to vote, will flow back to the Liberals. Anyway, um, the threat is that in Queensland it could swing the Senate, might not look good uh, in terms of that last Senate spot, which will be between the Greens and... Um, and Clive Palmer probably, so that 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 right splintering could benefit Palmer, maybe in that way. But yeah, um, yeah I'm not sure. Yeah, like I'm not sure. Like, my like first sentiment is I don't think there's anything to suggest that it is evidence of like the growth of that kind of wingnut section of the right vote, no. but the breakdown in its project. Like, mm. And again, I think like when we're evaluating it, I think that means that we'll probably see what we've seen within the bounds of the last 20 years since Hanson emerged, you know, mm. probably less than during the phenomena of the rise in Hanson, but maybe more than mm. during the middle period of Hanson in terms of Senate seats um, and or, or even lower house representation, I don't know. But to go back mm. to kind of Anastasia's point, that doesn't mean like that 
they aren't by other metrics like no. being as you said being able to be a political and dangerous force particularly in their ability to hurt people and Simon oh, yeah. Copland has had another article on um, after the on the Christchurch uh, attacks talking about lone wolf you know the notion of the lone wolf and how this fits in with some kind of political formation and I think um, mm-hmm. you know like it is very interesting in the sense that we do also see like um, the kind of turn to walk by the kind of lad society and people like that to yeah. figures like Fraser Anning. Mm. And um, it'll be really interesting. Like, I'd like, I assume Fraser Anning will be trounced, right? Like yes. the conservative, like, or, or what will happen will be a very weird play out of preferences. Like I've already no. voted. Like, a, you know, have you voted yeah. yet, John? No, well, I'll be, I'll be um, campaigning for the Greens on the day, so I'll just do it then. Oh, so you're actually camping. Well, that's interesting. So we should talk about like that yeah. as well. Like I won't yeah. be because um you know Caroline um is uh, serving democracy sausages, and so I'll be home looking after the kids, <laughs> and then I'll be playing Dungeons and Dragons. And you don't need to say that in public. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like so, so I've already voted, and like one of the things that's really yeah. interesting, I think people have been commenting on this, is just like how hard it is, like just mm. how you work out which right wing wing nut goes last, right? So yeah, like for the, for people who vote for the right, it'll be interesting to see how that that tax um, back and forth. I guess mm. like you know, I have been as always very critical of what I consider southern chauvinism. Mm. which is uh, the argument that somehow sees Queensland as being either the natural home of reaction or the cause mm-hmm. of reaction in Australian mm-hmm. politics. Like there's something essentially wrong with the great people north of the Tweed, the Tweed actually being the boundary of greater Queensland. The, um, <laughs> you know, like, um, and I think that's really problematic. But at, at yeah. the same because I think I think there's a flavour that reaction like racism is fundamental to Australian society as we talked about before with the various yeah. caveats and understandings and yeah. reactionary politics in the different states takes a whole bunch of different forms um, yeah. the, but in Queensland you know like it is able to I think combine um, mm. with some kind of sizable constituencies that might not happen elsewhere particularly in the forms of organisations like the Catter Australia Party and I think there's mm. a tendency to kind of um, associate Catter as just being kind of a taller male version of Pauline Hanson with a hat. But mm. I think when you get down to the ground in Queensland, it's actually important to understand that his politics is is, is different from um, mm. just the reactionary politics. And there's been some discussion, of course, as well, because a number of voices in the trade union movement have um, called for either, for either preferencing Catter above the Greens or mm. my union, Simon Together. So the public sector unions, like mm. you know, so certainly not the the union that might go, okay, we're representing mine workers in Gladstone or, or whatever. Mm. You know, ha- said encourage people to vote for Labor, Greens, or Catter Australia Party, making no differentiation um, between them. So yeah. there's, you know, there's, there's something pretty interesting and horrific about that because there's a lot that's fucking wrong with the cat. Like, um, they're they're a reactionary, you know, ro- mm. right laborist party. They're the party of sugar capital that mm. believes um in some kind of corporatist, you know, vision. And you, mm. I think the fact that unions support them isn't just a deviation, but also tells you something about how there's a structural nature to unions as representing, you know, 
yeah. defenders of capital. But so I don't know where I was going with this, John. But it was going to be a no, good point. You know, the rural foundations of the, you know, the, the of Queensland labour is really pronounced, like in terms of the Australian Workers Union was hugely successful in the um, in the in the north in um, the rural in the areas around around Mackay um, and yeah, like Queensland labour had a rural base until very recently um, because of Queensland's total lack of industrialization, largely speaking. So it does kind of make sense that they would share some ideas. Also, I guess, because Qatar is, you know, a social democrat where one nation, where Pauline Hanson is not a point made in um, the podcast that um, that Liz was on uh, by um, William Bow, I think, who's saying, you know, that, that... you know, um, in a way, you know, Hanson's politics has matured in some ways. I mean, in terms of that, she's no longer racist against Asians, but actually, she's racist against Muslims. Um, but in a way, her economic policies haven't shifted. She's still in a very '90s Howard moment of kind of doll bludgers and you know, crackdown on Centrelink rorters and everything. Well, it seems that increasingly, actually, the rhetoric on that is moving. I'm not sure what Cat's exact position on this is, but um, you know, towards you know, a largely social democratic economic framework um which is kind of elaborated and change the rules but more so in kind of you know like raising new start which seems to now be like a really big actual election issue thanks to work of great comrades in the uh, unemployed workers union but it seems like these sorts of issues are are, are unavoidable and you know that, that hansenism has been left behind in a way and um also i'm thinking in terms of the you know what was what we was the big argument that's always been made about why Australia never nurtured a very successful radical right is you know that the Labour Party and the Liberal Party have been able to between them be far right enough that there's been no need. But you know, um, Scott Morrison's you know, people have described the his government as very much like a kind of Labour light government in that he hasn't really made uh, so it's, you know, a few cultural war vignettes here and there. Um, though the his economic policies in general have been you know, it'd be difficult to differentiate them from, like, kind of a right labour position in a lot of ways. So there's been more of a space open, potentially, um, for a more... that was not open in the Howard era in the same way, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. All right, John, so we don't have a... We should wrap up soon. I think we should. But the one thing we haven't talked about is, and we can segue into it, you're campaigning for the Greens. So... Yeah. What do we know. think? Like, what? Where is our stance on the Greens elections and uh, the abol- abolition of the present state of things? Mm. I mean, I was listening to um, Ash Sucker did an interview with um, Biffo, Biffo uh, Barati, um, and you know, she um, asked him, um, "Do you think you know that that all you know all these people who I came up with, you know, I have my political awakening in 2011, 2010, 2011, the student strikes, the race riots, you know, all these people who are on the streets and now campaigning for Labour and Corbyn, and you know, is there a possibility that a radical politics can emerge out of this?" And you know, Biffo's response, I think, was quite quite telling. Of uh, he said, "You know, probably not, but why not try anyway?" <laughs> and I think that that's actually like you know, like yeah, why not? Like, and I think that's what Kia was getting as well, not only in the podcast here with you, but also with Navarro, you know, that, like, what is the, um, but that there's, that there's some possibilities 
you know, potentially in the in in that electoral sphere, and um, you know, if if and that that if that's why people are going, if that seems to be what what's popular and what's what 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 what's working well, then why would you oppose that? Now, my question is: Is that working well, or is it a, is it a good politics? Because I think um, you know the Greens in in Victoria. Are, particularly in Tasmania and to a lesser extent in New South Wales um, are not doing very well. They're doing well in, in Queensland <laughs> where there's much, much less central control from uh, Dino Tali and there's been, you know, as we've talked about in the show, a big um, reimagining um, of a kind of Corbynite sort of politics, which is really interesting and has, in a way, actually seemingly seized a lot of the initiative at the national level as well because of the lack of ideas really yeah. coming from um, from the Di Natale faction. Yeah, so I, I got asked, th- three three different uh, um, pe- people asked me if I would campaign for the Greens on election day at three different points. Yeah. And I... That's never happened to you before, I bet. Hey, look, I did handout for the Greens in, I think, the federal election in 1998 or 1997, I think. <laughs> I did it for about 10 minutes, I think, either maybe an hour and then went and bought some ice cream. Um, yep. And I, I was thinking about it and I was like, really, it's quite hard for me to compromise that kind of real um, rusted-on anti-electoralism, right? Mm. And I feel that I was quite lucky that I could, I got out by not being able to do it because I'm going to be looking after the kids while yeah. Caroline you know, helps out with the PNC. Yep. But it made me think about it is it's like, you know, I don't think I could campaign for the Greens. Like I don't support the, the Greens on a whole, right? I'm no. really interested in um, the South Brisbane Greens that there's a layer of comrades who are making a radical political project within the Greens. Um, I like, Mm. I'm still, I don't think what they're doing nullifies the critique of the state, but I don't think they do either. I think part of the problem with electoralism is, of course, it prevents you from making that argument. Um, Mm. There does seem to be an incredible amount of enthusiasm, um, activity, organising, um, you know, the, you should listen to the flood media episode about just the practicalities of door knocking. You know, like mm. in terms of someone who's like always banging on about the the importance of militant inquiry and co research, like they're doing yeah. it right. Like, yeah, no, exactly. you know, like yeah. there's a whole bunch of really interesting things that happen. And, and say we're, you know, we know as Keir said in the previous podcast, you know, we have mm. a limited period of time, but to make to overthrow capitalism in terms of climate change, you know, if the crisis breaks out tomorrow, we've got to move quickly. And, you know, all that organising will count. But I think that project is not the project of the Greens. So they're fighting a double fight, right? Yeah. And um, yep. and I, I'm supportive of that, but I still... Um, I'm glad that I didn't have to actually make <laughs> that leap, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> if, 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 that, if that makes sense. And, of course, mm. the, other, the other thing that's um, probably worth thinking about as well is that there's another radical project that's going on in Victoria, the Victorian Socialists. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a, I don't really understand what that is. Um, mm. It seems to be like an electoral... Like, it seems to be... It's like an organisation, but it's constituted mm. of people from a group called the Socialists, Socialist Alliance and Socialist Alternative, but they all maintain mm. their own separate 
formal identities, but I've seen certain mm. people like writing in their name. Um, they mm. they contested the Victorian election with a strategy of focusing in three seats. Um, their their lead candidate was a prominent Yarra councillor. Stephen Jolly, and I think it's worth, it's important to note that um, during the election campaign, uh, s- real allegations of, uh, I guess, mm. um, sexual harassment, uh, or uh, mm. um, I hope I haven't got that wrong, were raised. Mm. I've never seen an answer that was presented to that organisation. But they no. also seem to be doing a very similar project to the, um, mm. to the South Brisbane Greens, yeah. but in Melbourne. Yeah, so you, really, you can't really tell the difference between the platforms, honestly. Like I, the platforms are very similar. I think, you know, uh, we talked a while ago about some articles that appeared in Jacobin and we were going to do a show yeah. about them on the nature of the Labor Party. And I, I yeah. think, actually, if you look at how um, it's Daniel Lopez and yeah. Ivan Mitchell's. Mitchell, and so yeah. we're linked to this, how they actually articulate their, their politics, I thought they were more kind of traditionally social democratic than the way that people in the South Brisbane Greens talk about their politics. I oh, yeah, think, no, was, I actually think the such South, a weird article. Right? Yeah. I actually think the South Brisbane Greens are, are, are more, more radical, are more yeah. radical than, um, than yeah. what's going on. But there, there was a recent post by Jerome Small, who's one of their candidates, who, you know, mm. very detailed, like, you know, kind of my day on the hustings. And it was, mm. it was it reminded me very much of the kind of experience that people are talking about in the, in the South, South Brisbane Greens as well. It was actually a beautiful little Facebook post. I don't know if it'll be mm. generalised into something else. I'll see if I can find it. But, mm. um, you know, so we do have those kind of radical attempts too. Like I, like, mm. you know, that... Um, the, for me, I always go back to that you know well-worn terrain, uh, the well-worn quote from the English libertarian socialist group Solidarity, and as we mm. see it, and they have a thing about you know meaningful action. That's mm. a really beautiful definition about what meaningful action is. I think I'm more confused than ever than about what meaningful action is. Like I used mm. to think, you know, my standard criticism would be like getting people involved in uh, in elections is not meaningful action because it just reinforces yeah. mystifications, right? amongst the mm. activists and amongst the class too. I'm no longer confident that is the yeah. case. Um, no. I and mean, I think we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think if anything, you know, the, the, what we've seen with the Greens in, 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 in Queensland in particular, but then also that's reflected in, um, in kind of DSA-link people in the US as well. It's this kind of, yeah, real attempt to like really dismiss democracy as it, stands and the state as it exists and that these are actually like you know not not maybe not to the degree to which we would define the state but certainly you know saying that you know this isn't just a matter of seizing the state in some way that this is a matter of like reimagining what is a possibility of what you can do with the state in a way um yeah so it'll be interesting interesting to see how how it plays out um and yeah in the end um the result on the night will be um, pretty scattershot, I think, but I think we'll probably end up with with short with a shortened government. At least that's what the betters Jinxed. betting odds are. Jinxed. Betting odds, man. Don't people put their money on that? You know? Well, look, I, I put I put twenty five bucks on Max to win. Um, oh, so that's that's going to be like uh, two hundred bucks. It's eight oh. to one. Jeez. But I felt yeah. really ripped off because mm. a friend put uh, <laughs> yeah. money on as well, and like sports get bet gave them more cash. 
Like, oh. so they got to bet like even more. So if Max wins, they're going to just be like, you know, oh. showing off and hitting me with fifties and making <laughs> crafty with two hands. <laughs> yeah, there's a real absence of craft beer discussion in the official portion of today's yeah, podcast. Like, yeah, well, um, let, let's, yeah, let's let's you know well, um, <laughs> we don't want to we don't want to fit any more stereotypes that's going on. Like we record we record this for you know an hour, it's an hour and twenty minutes so far, but preceding that was three hours of categorizing <laughs> uh, which IP which hazy IPAs are the best and yeah, uh, yeah, like really um, are sour beers terrible mm. or horrific? Sour grapefruit. Is that okay? Oh, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay, let's wrap this up. Um, before, uh, before this gets that's good. So, down track, downhill. Yeah, we'll catch up to you. We'll catch up soon. So, thanks everyone for listening to Living thanks. the Dream. I hope you found that uh, somewhat useful. Um, yeah. Since we've encouraged criticism, keep that criticism coming our way. Um, you can hit us at Twitter. I'm at, mm. at with sober senses. John, you are at John Pacini. Yeah. And I'm going to finish this by playing a song, an old Australian folk song that I only learnt from watching Bluey. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. All right. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. I went walking by Brisbane waters I chanced to stray I heard a convict his fate bewailing As on the sunny river bank he lay I am a native of Erin's island Though banished now from my native shore They tore me from my aged parents And from the maiden whom I adore At Port Macquarie, at Norfolk Island, and Emu Plains, at Castle Hill, and at Tuangabi, at all those settlements I've worked in chains. But of all places of condemnation and penal stations in New South Wales, to Morton Bay I have found no equal. Excessive tyranny each day prevails For three long years I've been badly treated With heavy irons on my legs I wore My back with flogging is lacerated And painted with my own crimson gore And many a man from downright starvation Lies molding now And Captain Logan, he had us tortured at the pillories down at Morton Bay Like the Egyptians and ancient Hebrews, we were oppressed under Logan's yoke Till a native black waiting there in ambush did give this tyrant his mortal stroke my fellow prisoners be exhilarated That all oh, such monsters such death may find And when from bondage we're liberated